Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I've been looking forward to publishing today's podcast ever since I first learned that Grover Norquist was to be the final speaker at this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. And if you aren't already familiar with Grover Norquist, you really won't understand the significance of his attendance at Burning Man. But of those who are aware of Norquist's significance in American politics, well, I'm afraid not everyone was as supportive of him delivering a Palenque Norte lecture as I was. Hopefully this podcast will change those opinions. To give you an idea of how polarizing Grover can be, I actually received several emails saying that the senders would never go to Burning Man again because, (laughs) are you ready for this? Because he had ruined everything by attending. Now, that's got to be one of the most idiotic things that I've heard in a long time. So, let's get a grip here, and first of all, recall last week's podcast, where Lily and Nache were suggesting that our community be more open about airing our dirty laundry in public. And to me, some of our dirty laundry includes being extremely closed-minded about people who we have political disagreements with. If you're new to the salon, you haven't learned this yet, but in the 1980s, while I was living in Dallas, Texas, I, at the time, was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. Well, today I'm still Irish, and I am an inactive member of the Texas State Bar Association. But politically, there's nothing about me that reeks of my Dallas ears. In brief, my political progression was from Democrat to Republican to Libertarian. And you probably know the joke that Libertarians are just Republicans who smoke pot. Uh, But after my Libertarian phase, I morphed into a little-A anarchist, and uh, maybe someday I'll explain all that in more detail. However, my point is that during those years when my politics were different, I was still basically the same person that I am today. I wasn't a bad guy back then, and neither are my Republican friends who are still living in Texas. As we listen to Grover's talk in a few moments now, you'll learn that he isn't a one-trick pony either. In fact, he makes it clear that he doesn't agree with everything that others in his organization even promote. But on one thing, they all agree. The U.S. government overcollects and seriously wastes our taxes. What they're wasted on, of course, is a bone of contention among us all. Now, I'll have a little more to say about this after we listen to this talk. But as we listen, I hope the image that you keep in mind is that of the Ouroboros, the mythical snake. And I hope that you're mature enough to realize that I'm not calling Grover a snake. Far from it. But the Ouroboros, you probably know, is uh, shown in paintings as this mythical snake that's eating its own tail. It's the symbol of eternal return, of something that's constantly recreating itself. And, in my opinion, that's precisely what civilization is doing. Unless you're extremely closed-minded, you most likely share some of the opinions of conservatives. And if you're a conservative yourself, I suspect that there are still many issues on which you and I can agree, like legalizing cannabis, for example. My point is that we should all be listening more closely to people with whom we disagree, because my guess is that no matter who it is, there will be some things that we have serious disagreements with, but there will also be other issues on which we heartily agree. To me, being psychedelic means being open-minded. And I think that the talk that we are about to listen to will bring home the fact that despite our differences of opinion on some issues, 
We're nonetheless all in this together, and so we'd better begin listening and communicating better with everyone, not just with people whom we're in agreement with. Now one more thing before I play the recording of this talk, and uh, this is for all of you fans of Gary Trudeau's new political comedy series on Netflix that's titled Alpha House. Well, here's a spoiler alert. In the just-released episode 3 of season 2, you'll see Grover Norquist playing the role of a character who had won a contest for being the funniest celebrity in Washington, D.C. And by that appearance alone, you can tell that he's a lot more of a regular guy than you might have previously imagined. So, now let's travel back in time to a hot August night in 2014 on the playa at Burning Man, where Grover Norquist is about to speak. All right, everybody, welcome to Palenque Norte. We are about to get going here with our last talk. It's been a fabulous four days of talks. Thank you all so much for joining us. So to close out the week here, we have a very special talk. Uh, We have Grover Norquist with us. Uh, Welcome, Grover. Um, So Grover is going to speak for a little bit, and then we're going to have a lot of time for Q&A. And today's discussion will be moderated by John Mitchell, who's the managing editor at Burning Man. So please welcome John Grover to the stage. Good evening, Palenque Norte. Uh, For those of you who do not know me, I work for the U.S. Department of Burning Man. And I'm here with Burning Man participant Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Hi, Grover. Hello. How's your burn going? Doing well. Having fun. Any highlights? Oh, the whole thing. I mean, the Petra and Burning Man are the two things, places I've been that were more intriguing and interesting and amazing than advertised. Mm. Everything else, I mean, the Louvre was nice, but I kind of knew what it was, and it wasn't any nicer than I thought it would be. (laughs) Um, But Petra, way beyond what I expected, and Burning Man, just deeper and more intense and bigger. Cool. Um, Well, I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about your work and how it brought you to Burning Man, uh, what your goals and ambitions are for the time you're here and how it fits into that vision. <laughs> sure. Um, Grover Norquist, I run uh, Americans for Tax Reform, which is a taxpayer group that asks all candidates for office, federal and state, to make a written commitment to voters, not to me, as Senator Reid sometimes says, but to voters, uh, that they will oppose and vote against any tax increase, no net tax increase. Tax reform, fine. Tax cuts, fine. No tax increase. Uh, So I work on that and have done that for about uh, 25 years now. I also serve on the Board of Directors of the National Rifle Association and work on Second Amendment rights and on the uh, Parental Rights Organization, which works on homeschooling rights and and, uh, making it easier for people to uh, homeschool. So uh, we put together a meeting in D.C. uh, about this size. We put 150 to 180 people every uh, Wednesday together for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, 30 people out of that 180 will present for three minutes each on what they're doing, not what their hopes and fears are, not what they think other people should do, what are they doing to advance liberty. Uh, And then people can participate with them or not as they uh, see fit. We have a broad center-right coalition uh, that works on that. And as Burning Man has sort of got state and regional and international uh, spinoffs, 
uh, the center-right meeting. There are now 45 state capitals that have similar uh, meetings, uh, 10 in second cities, uh, San Diego, Chicago, um, Orlando, and so on, uh, and 16 international ones from London to Tokyo to uh, wherever Australia is. And uh, so we're, we're trying to build a center-right movement that advances liberty um, as rapidly and as firmly as possible. Uh, and what I want to do is just give a brief overview on sort of where I think we are and then take questions uh, until you guys get tired. Right now, there are two com- we have a two-party system, even though there are many parties because of the way the laws are structured. And so in Europe, you know, you might have ten parties, and if you get 3% of the vote, you get to decide who the prime minister is, and you're terribly important. In the United States, if you get 3% of the vote, you're officially a nut. Um, you don't get, no matter how right you are, by the way, you don't get to fly Air Force One, you don't get to be the senator. So people and tendencies join coalitions, all, you know, two different coalitions, broadly the Republican and Democratic Party, but uh, the center-right and the left movement. Uh, and if you want to know what guys on the center-right are going to be doing, the best way to understand it is you think of the, the meeting that we have in D.C., Everybody's in the room. All of the tendencies and political movements are there because on their vote-moving issue, not all issues, and this confuses people, but on their vote-moving issue, what they want from the government is to be left alone. On their secondary and tertiary issues, they may have some odd views that would not make me happy. And I can assure you as a board member of the National Rifle Association, many of the people who vote pro-Second Amendment have what I consider the oddest views on free trade with China. Um, But they don't vote on free trade. They vote on the Second Amendment. So around the table, people who vote on these issues vote center-right. Taxpayers, leave my income alone. Property owners, leave my property alone. Homeschoolers, let me educate my own uh, kids. Uh, Homeschoolers don't knock on your door and tell you to homeschool. They simply wish to be left alone to homeschool. The Second Amendment community... Uh, does not insist uh, that all fourth grade children be taught books entitled, you know, Heather has two hunters. That's, you know, they're not telling you that what you have to do, they simply want to be left alone with their Second Amendment um, rights. The uh, school choice movement, parental choice in education, uh, the people for whom religious liberty is their number one issue. You can go around the table, everybody's there on their vote moving issue, they wish to be left alone. Now they're tongue-wagging issues that some radio talk show hosts talk about uh, that can be very frightening to people who are concerned about liberty. Uh, But I'm less concerned about issues if they're not vote-moving issues. I'd like everybody to be right on all issues, but most the important one is on their vote-moving issues. Um, So around the table, they don't all agree. The guy who wants to make money all day looks across the table at the guy who wants to go to church all day and says, that's not how I spend my time. And they both look over at the guy who wants to fondle his guns all day and say, that's not how we spend our time. But it's not necessary that everybody in the center-right movement agree on how they spend their time and their freedom, just that the government should leave people alone to run their own lives. Then they can decide how they wish to spend their time. And they can go to church all day. They can make money all day. They can play with their guns all day. Whatever they want to do with their time and and space and energy – And that's the center-right coalition. It's a low-maintenance coalition because people are not in conflict on a vote-moving issue. 
Uh, I got a call when Hillary Clinton was running for Senate back in 2000 because she made the comment that what progressives needed was one of those meetings like Grover Norquist runs in Washington where we all get together and think deep thoughts. And uh, what did I think of Hillary's comment? And I said, I explained how our coalition works. I said, the challenge for Hillary is that around the center-left table, um, you have the trial lawyers, the labor unions, the big city political machines, the two wings of the dependency movement, people who are locked into welfare dependency, the people who make $100,000 a year managing that dependency and making sure they don't get jobs and become Republicans. Um, Then you have all the various coercive utopians who uh, have plans because they're your moral superiors and they get government grants to tell the rest of us how to run our lives. Uh, These are the guys who make the cars too small to put your entire family into and the toilets too small to flush completely. Uh, And they, they have a list of things that you have to do and a list of things that you're not allowed to do that is slightly longer and more tedious than Leviticus. Um, It just goes on and on and on. So around the left's table, they can get along as long as we're stupid enough to keep throwing taxpayer money in the middle of the table. Because then, like the scene in the movie with the bank robbery, after the bank robbery, one for you, one for you, one for everybody around the table is happy. But if we do our job, if we say no new taxes, and we mean it, and the pile of money in the center of the table begins to dwindle, then our friends on the left begin to look around at each other at the table a little bit more like the second to the last scene in those lifeboat movies. Now they're trying to decide who gets eaten or who gets thrown overboard. Um, So our job is to stop sending money in, force the contradictions within the various structures of the left, um, so that they argue with each other and gnaw on the guy next to them. If we don't feed them taxpayers, they will gnaw on the guy next to them. Because uh, the left is not made up of friends and allies. It's made up of competing parasites. Uh, and they view the guy next to them as a competitor, not an ally, if there's a limit to tax dollars being available. So what do we try and do? Increase the number of people who have liberty so they'll defend it stronger and reduce the number of people who take advantage of the state to live off other people and to tell other people what to do. And the fewer of, the, of them that there are and the more people willing to defend liberty, the stronger the center-right is. And that's the project for the next 300 years. Um, and we try and advance and make the world a safer, freer, um, less top-down, less government-telling-us-what-to-do uh, set of rules. Uh, and I think we're in generally uh, good shape on doing that. Uh, I would say our friends on the left say, well, demographics will help the left, and they view demographics as all about race and ethnicity. Uh, in point of fact, demographics that matter are about vote-moving issues. Um, and so they're now in the 2007, there are 4.5 million Americans with concealed carry permits. Today, there are 11 million. Okay? In those states that have more people with concealed carry permits, crime, particularly violent crime, drops much more rapidly than in other states because criminals are not stupid. They're just criminals, and they steal cars rather than break into people's houses uh, or mug people in concealed carry states. Uh, so you want to expand the number of people who have rights that they want protected uh, and Uh, reduce the number of people who view the state as the means of living at somebody else's expense. So uh, with that general overview, love to take questions on just about anything.
I, I have a question, Grover. Yeah. Um, tell us what that has to do with Burning Man. Sure. Like, is it is it is it something about the values uh, that you see reflected here, or is it more like the process by which your group makes decisions and talks about issues? Um, what what attracted you to come here? Um, well, uh, Larry Harvey said, "Why don't you come?" Uh, a couple years ago, we met and had dinner in D.C. and we were just talking, just talking about Burning Man, and um, said you should come. And I said I'd like to. I've heard a great deal about it. Know a lot of good people that go. Uh, and that year, 2012, some idiot put the Republican convention the same week as Burning Man, uh, and I talked to them, but they weren't able to change it, and so I couldn't go. Uh, but anyway, tough they, choice. Yeah, it was. Um, but I, <laughs> that was work. Um, anyway, I was able to come uh, this year. I mean, this is this is a fascinating situation where a whole bunch of people come together for a week, do their own thing. Um, nobody takes it, you know, the government doesn't tell anybody what to do. The government does charge Burning Man several million dollars for which they do nothing. They're very expensive to Burning Man. Um, and each of the local governments gets in on the action on giving people tickets to other ways to make money. So the government does get in the way and the government is annoying and the government makes the cost of Burning Man higher than it, than it needs to be. Uh, and that needs to be called back. Um, but I think Burning Man's a wonderful example of uh, communities organizing themselves without being told what to do. It, it, I hear that. It, it works better than Chicago or, you know, some other examples of states. Um, well, why don't we open it up for questions from the people um, to see uh, what their sense is of that and if they have any questions for you about how we run our society here. Sure. Goddard Space Flight Center, which is part of NASA, funded a report that came out in 2012 that no one would publish. Uh, finally, on 14th of March of this year, The Guardian published it. It's called Industrialized Civilization Headed for Irreversible Collapse. They went back 5,000 years with the Mesopotamians, the Mayans, the Romans, the Spanish the Dutch, the French, the English, and now us. And they talked about, my concern is they talked about using a lowest possible depletion rate and a very small number of elites. Eventually, the elites consume too much, leading to scarcity among the commoners, which causes a collapse of society. This is to be differentiated from a type L collapse where nature collapses. This is a collapse of society. I wondered what your views were on that. Sure. Um, I mean, most societies are not destroyed by the weather. They're destroyed by their idiot governments. Um, and one of the reasons I got interested in taxes is you look at the history of the United States, the history of the, all the empires you walk through. The Roman Empire was destroyed by its tax policies. I mean, they had a tax revolt in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey against the Romans. 86,000 tax collectors were killed within a month. Um, they were... They were really abusive. Um, people were selling themselves into slavery to get out from under the tax burden. Um, so the Dutch did the same thing. With the, the Spanish taxed themselves out of their... I mean, they had all the lovely gold they could steal um, from Latin America, and they still taxed themselves into oblivion. The Netherlands did the same thing. Um, Britain did. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sad history. I just finished a 
what's supposed to be a 75,000-word book. It's now 95,000 words. We'll see what the editor has to say about that on the history of taxation in the United States. And you go through U.S. history, and it just at every place, taxes help either move us in the right direction or the wrong direction. Uh, we had a tax revolt that formed the country, gave us our independence. Uh, then, almost immediately, we had the 25% tax on whiskey, and we had the whiskey rebellion. Before the country was divided north-south, it was divided east-west, and the tax on uh, whiskey was viewed as a tax on the west, west being um, Appalachia and west. Those people traded with the Spanish, with the French, with the British, not so much with the other Americans. Um, they weren't necessarily all in states yet, and they used whiskey as a currency. They also used whiskey as a way to turn product into something you could transport. So all of a sudden we put a 25% tax on their ability to export for their cash crop and a 25% tax on what they used as uh, currency, and they started shooting um, uh, the whiskey rebellion. Uh, so when Jefferson got elected, he abolished all of those taxes, and Jefferson's party governed uh, for the next uh, 24 years uh, as a result of that. The Federalist Party, the party of Washington and John Adams, was destroyed. It never came back because of their tax policies. That it almost broke the country uh, into two at the time. Uh, and then you had the tariff, which divided the North and the South. The tariff was the South subsidizing the North, uh, which, which was no end of troubles for the next 40 years. Uh, and then we, we got prohibition because of the income tax. Got World War I because of the income tax, but prohibition, you had a temperance movement that said we should stop letting people drink. The temperance movement said don't drink. The prohibition movement said we're going to have laws to not let you drink, which is a different matter. But you couldn't have prohibition because a third of federal revenues came from liquor taxes. A third. And a whole bunch of them came from selling off land as people moved west. So when the income tax came in in 1913, it had as its advocates Southerners who wanted to reduce the tariff and the temperance movement, which said, gee, if we had the income tax, then we could get rid of uh, banned liquor, uh, which is exactly what happened. Without the income tax, we probably would not have ever had prohibition. Without the income tax collapse in 1929... Uh, let me just wrap up here and then we'll go to the next question. Because You want to hear this about prohibition. It's very good. Um, because we had the 29 collapse uh, in income tax revenues, the government was looking for money. And 10 years of murders and organized crime and Al Capone didn't convince people to get rid of prohibition. What convinced the politicians to get rid of prohibition was they wanted the money from taxing liquor. So liquor came back because of the collapse of the income tax. Oh no, that does too. The question was, do what do I think of the idea that the gov our our empire, our American society, could collapse internally based on decisions made by the government? I said, I think it's very likely. All the comments, all the base cases he did were ones where tax policy did exactly that. Yes, it could happen. I intended to work with all you good people and stop it, but yes, it could happen. Well, I'm going to change the subject. Um, this is the end. 
This is the end of the lecture series for psychedelics. And I'm so grateful that Mr. Norquist is here at the end of the lecture, psychedelics lecture series. And I'm really curious what Mr. Norquist might have to offer on the topic of psychedelics. Alec, the great thing about being a tax proactive is you don't actually have to have an opinion on all subjects, unlike columnists who do because they have to write every week. Um, but let me expand that to the question of prohibition, okay? And no, meaning all drugs, all drugs. Um, and that's one where I think we're having a very healthy discussion, maybe long overdue, but a healthy discussion about what, whether the state should have the power States don't have rights. People have rights. States have powers. Whether the state should be allowed the power to tell people what they can and can't ingest. Uh, and I think we saw with liquor that that was a counterproductive um, decision uh, for a decade. Very expensive. We're still paying the costs of the damage done to the country by the creation and of organized crime and government corruption from that. Uh, and I think that the discussion starting with the marijuana uh the issues of medical marijuana, which is now 22, 24 states, uh, and the discussions, the, the legislation in Washington and Colorado. Having 50 states is an extremely helpful way to bring new ideas forward. Those people who think that legalizing marijuana will be a disaster, well, we've got Colorado and uh, Washington, and we'll be able to look at that. And if it's a disaster, people will pull back. And if it's not, more states will move forward. And so I'm not sure I like the idea of Washington deciding for all 50 states, yes, no. I'm much more interested in 50 states taking their own approaches and learning from each other. I think we'll make progress much more rapidly doing that than waiting for guys in Washington to all flip one way or all flip the other. Psychedelics are part of that broader conversation. Hi. So I'm actually really excited to meet you. So this is hi. Um, okay. I was wondering if you could talk about the liberty enhancing aspects of a guaranteed basic income. Because I'm not really free to quit my job if I'm free to starve. That's no type of freedom. Um, and it also gives the opportunity, like, you don't need a minimum wage if there's guaranteed basic income. There's probably, like, OSHA things we could get rid of. You know, we don't, because if, you, if your job's dangerous, you can leave without starving. Okay, the question was, should the government take money by force from people and give it to other people? And I tend to think that the answer to that should be no. Um, I think we should organize society with a minimum amount of force. Uh, and that when the government steps in and says, we're going to take money from you and give it to somebody else, you might go, well, we could do it to help poor people. Okay, well, the government says that's what they do, um, but the government then turns around and runs a farm subsidy program, which makes every poor person particularly poorer because they spend more of their income on food by raising the price. And they make a bunch of people quite rich uh, who are in the sugar business and, and others. Uh, when, you give the gov when you allow the government to have the power to expropriate from one person and take their resources and hand them to somebody else, uh, 
you open up a very dangerous situation, and I think if you look throughout the history of the world, governments use that power very poorly, and our government doesn't do it very well. I do think we should focus on getting, making a list of things the government does that kill and destroy jobs and stop doing those uh, and uh, work on creating as many jobs as possible. If this economic recovery, the one that started six months after Obama got elected, uh, July 2009, if we had simply grown as well and as uh, strongly as we did in the same time period after Reagan's uh, recession bottomed out when his recovery started, there would be more than 10 million additional Americans at work. The cost of bad policy is 10 million people out of work, 10 million families missing a breadwinner. That's an awful lot of poverty. And that's all from doing bad policy, spending too much money and having too much taxes rather than going in the other direction. We've seen policies that work. We've seen policies that didn't work. This, the, the weakness of this recovery, the, the human cost of the bad policies is 10 million unemployed people who could be working. Uh, I have another question, Grover. Sure. It's, uh, it's about Burning Man. Um, uh, in our society here, we have principles, practices, institutions um, that we made ourselves, largely, but also that the organization that runs the event constructs for us. Um, for supporting our, you know, ev- everyone in our society. The, the principle of gifting is what it's essentially about. You've probably heard this. Um, I'm wondering uh, what you, th- how, how we are doing on your scorecard for taking care of our own. Um, how does this society look a lot or a little or none at all like the one that you'd like to live in? I think, look, the reason why the free market does well in producing computers and software and Amazons and Ubers and so on uh, is because of competition. And the problem that governments have is they don't get enough competition. When you go throughout history, the one part of governments that work is the military. Why? It's the one part that has to compete in the world. Okay, Your post office can be pretty weak, but if your military is not as good as the guy next door, they eat you um, over time. And so... That you have that kind of competition, which is not necessarily a healthy competition, uh, but it is the history of much of the world uh, throughout history. I'm talking about a virtuous competition where with the 57, not 50 states, um, say, look at what we're doing in Texas, no income tax. Uh, most of the economic growth, job growth in the country has been coming out of Texas in the last 10 years. Uh, with a series of different policies than California has or Massachusetts. Uh, and looking at the 50 states and saying, let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't work. This, not that, that's true with marijuana policies. That's true with tort law. That's true with spending. Uh, the question was, what about a guaranteed minimum income? Let, let Vermont try it and see how it works. And if it works, then everyone, we must do that. Um, I'm, an, I'm all in favor of the most amount of competition so that states compete to provide the best government at the lowest cost. And the, the great right now we have this uh, logjam in D.C. You have a Republican House, Democratic Senate, nothing's going to move. Nothing big is going to move. Um, nothing good big, nothing bad big, because one could veto the other, one can stop the other. 
But in 24 states, there's a Republican governor, Republican House, Republican Senate. The Republicans sit down and decide to do something. 24 states, they can do it. Half the country's population lives in a Republican state. A quarter of the country's population lives in a Democrat-controlled state, California, Illinois, Massachusetts. The, the Democrats sit in a room. They have the House, the governorship, and the Senate. They can do anything they want. So three-quarters of the country has either has unified government, either Democrat or Republican. And there, if you have a good idea that you think will work, t- take it to the Democrats or the Republicans, whether it's an idea from the left or the right, and pass it at the state level. And then say, look at this. Um, I mean, that's how we passed concealed carry, uh, shall issue concealed carry laws. It says if you're 21 and you're honest and you're not crazy or you're not a criminal, you will be given a concealed carry permit. Why? We passed it in Florida. Crime dropped dramatically in Florida. There weren't shootouts in the street. And then people went to other states and said, we want to do that. And they saw their crime fall more rapidly than other places. If you have a good idea that works, other states will do it. And if you have a really good idea that you think it's a good idea and it fails dramatically, then other states will go, don't do that. Um, So uh, what Burning Man does, what Uber does, they're not states, but they say, here's a different approach. We do this differently. This is how we structure ourselves. This is successful. This works. I think all, even non-state actors... um, can be very helpful in giving people a different sense of how we can organize ourselves without the state ordering us around with guns. Hi. I'm pretty tall. Um, So you mentioned perhaps anecdotally about your plan being projected for the next 300 years and slowly chipping away at that or quickly chipping away at that. We're going to win in the next seven, but okay. Yeah, yeah. We I may guess. have to take 300. Yeah. My question for you is um, how how are you thinking about the ecological crisis and the fact that 50, year from now, 50 years from now, if things don't change, if practices don't change, that our planet's going to be unrecognizable and perhaps most likely very, very hostile to life? I think two things. One, when you look at... Uh, some of the projections that people have made over time, we need to be very careful that, remember, uh, Ehrlich, the uh, population bomb guy, explained that in the 70s we were going to have tens of millions of people throughout the globe starving and we were all doomed, uh, and that the population was going to swell when now we've got many countries and where it's in decline. those groups that have put together ideas look, looking forward on global warming, for instance, I think all studies, certainly all studies funded by the federal government, should be completely transparent. And so if you've got a proposal and say, we've got an equation here, and that says there's a hockey stick, and this is what's going to happen, um, I think if you get federal money, taxpayer money, there's no federal money, money taken from taxpayers by force uh, and given to you, you should have to make any study that you put forward completely transparent. The government needs to do this, too. And the whole transparency issue, uh, September 4th, Ralph Nader and I are speaking at the uh, National Press Club on things that the right and the left can agree on. And Ralph and I do a whole bunch of projects together where you can have principled people on the right and principled guys on the left. who They're not sacrificing. They're not compromising. 
I'm not doing something to be nice to Ralph Nader, and he's certainly not doing something just to be, you know, agreeable. We each think we're moving our agenda forward, working together against the interests of the government. Uh, and one of those er areas of agreement is transparency. Uh, and I bring this up because the, the projections people have on some stuff, I think that we should look at that and take it very seriously. But I think anyone who says, I've done a study and it proves X, and you've got to live your life and organize it around my study, and I won't show you the, 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 either the data or the equations I use to make my projections. Um, the agreement when the government funds these studies need to be, that needs to be open, not for peer review, which is your friends lying for you. you know, I mean, if, if you, you ever read the back of those books where people write things about how swell the book is, okay? None of those people have read the book. They do it because they like the author, he's their friend, and they like their name on top of on the back of a book that they didn't have to write, okay? Um, so they never mean anything. Um, what you want is transparency so 300 million Americans and several billion people around the globe can look at something and have some, and, and have some sense as to how serious it is. Um, but transparency is one of those great issues where right and left agree that government funding should be transparent. Every check the government writes should be transparent. It should be on. It's all public information. It's just sitting in shoeboxes in city halls and in file cabinets in Washington, D.C., and Guys who can afford lobbyists can go get those file cabinets and look at them, but that should be available to every person in the country, not just a few people. Yeah, so the, to, the, the question, I think, if I may rephrase, was yeah. what, how does society respond to such a possible crisis? Well, okay, you start by saying, if you're going to assert that we know X is going to happen, that everybody in the country needs to see both the data and the projections and how you got there. And we didn't get that for many years and still don't have it um, from a lot of the equations on global warming. Let's get all the data completely transparent, and then you can have an intelligent conversation. Well, let's, let's say that we get it and the, and the data does not look good. What do we do then? How do we organize around that problem? Well there, well, there are several ways. One is you say to yourself, what is it the federal government's doing that makes a problem worse? Makes it, what, how can you make it less of a problem? Are there ways you can do it? I'm always a little bit concerned when our friends on the left every year or two come up with a new crisis. And the answer to every crisis is more government power. I would, like, I would feel more comfortable if sometimes we, – we had Al Gore come and talk to our Wednesday meeting – uh, just before his movie came out. And he was quite convinced if he talked slowly, we'd understand. Um, and he's a, he's a bright guy, and he's, he's a wonderful person. And he came and gave his presentation on global warming. And I asked, I said, I'm old enough to remember when in the 1970s global cooling was happening. It was inevitable. Everybody who didn't see it was an idiot. And that you had to do ten things because of global cooling. Uh, use less energy and so on. And now there's global warming, uh, or then there was global warming, and same 10 things had to be done to stop global warming. Now there's climate change, and the same 10 things have to be done on climate change. If the angels came down, sat on your shoulder, and said, no change, no climate warming, no cooling, none of that, are there any of those 10 things that we shouldn't still do? And he said immediately, no, you should still do all those 10 things. At some point, you wonder if 
they want to mandate 10 things and they just keep changing the reasoning why you have to do these 10 things. And that's why I think we should be, one, very careful to make sure that the whole country sees the data, not just the experts, but the whole country. And two, um, if you were going to fix a problem in 1910 over the next 100 years, you would do it with 1910 technology, 1910 thinking, and you wouldn't have a chance of fixing it. Part of what you want to do is have the most robust, flexible economy possible so that when there are challenges, uh, ecological or others, we can roll with the punches and and, and be able to move quickly and, and, and reform. So I think step one, what everything is going to happen on the economy or weather or uh, foreign policy, a very strong, robust, free, organically run bottom-up economy is important and flexibility is key. So you can make those decisions. Hi, Grover. I'm also very excited to meet you. So first, can I ask you for an autograph? (laughs) I think you made my mom's month. Okay. So I I find very attractive the idea of being left alone in peace to do what I want. Um, Gay people, people who are gender non-normative, people who have strange alternative relationships, um, have not found a place around the table at the Republican Party. And I may be all for personal liberty, but some of the people who drive votes on your issues are also, you know, they have a lot of strange ideas and they really want to control what other people do. So why haven't you been able to find a place for... You know, something that really doesn't leave, you know, really doesn't seem to me anyway to have a lot of effects on others. Sure. Um, well, I think one of the reasons, yeah, one of the reasons you've seen public opinion shift, I think, dramatically on that subject is for just that reason. Um, that you have an odds when you get to the marriage question. Marriage used to be run by churches, synagogues, and mosques, and not by the government. Um, and then the Protestants came in and ruined everything by making civil marriage uh, in order to take it away from the Catholic Church in Europe. And um, now the government was making these decisions. The government should enforce contracts. The government shouldn't define contracts, and the government should, as much as possible, stay out of people's lives if somebody hasn't hit somebody else on the top of the head with a baseball bat. Um, So I think you're, you're one... It doesn't appear to be a vote-moving issue in terms of opposition to gay marriage. Or, um, and if you actually look at the polling data on um, 2004, when traditional marriage was on the ballot in a bunch of states, um, it didn't correlate with re- the Republican vote or the, or the Bush vote. Um, it is an issue that I think a bunch of people ended up jumping into things and saying stuff that they ought not to have. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, obviously there are a lot of very important gay Republicans within the broad center-right coalition. At our um, center-right meeting in D.C., we have two different gay Republican groups in the meeting. Uh, and so I think it's just sometimes things take longer than you think they should. I would suggest that it is not right of center a, a vote-moving issue, and that's showing up in the way things are moving. Hi, so thanks for coming. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I know it's kind of a hostile audience in some ways, so thank you. Um, you got to live in D.C. You went hostile. 
So I'm curious about your views of Burning Man as a model for society. You talked about it being a self-organizing thing. I have volunteered in one capacity or another, sometimes for financial remuneration, sometimes not, for the organization for about 15 years. And as it has grown, the organization has grown because it is needed to. If it had like a small government civil liberty thing that I think so many people of your point of view embrace, I think there would be a lot of problems. You know, we have a very intense, you know, gate staff. We have DPW that works like crazy putting all this infrastructure in place in a pretty short amount of time. And a lot of them volunteer or are paid less than minimum wage. It is totally not sustainable for a model for society, maybe for a festival, you know, that's a short thing that people do for love. But you can't possibly do that in, in a real society. And so I guess my question, it's going gonna, it's gonna to boil down to something kind of simple. Do you believe that people who work to maintain our society, our infrastructure, whether it's public education, I know you're not totally in favor, I know you like homeschooling, but obviously there's still going to be some people publicly educated, um, you know, being a forest ranger, all of that, all the things that we find actually need to be done, do they deserve, you know, a secure wage where they could live without financial anxiety and, you know, retirement and have a family and all of that? And if you do agree, I'm sure you're probably not going to say no. That would be kind of suicidal. How do you reconcile that with your small government cut, 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 cut philosophy? Sure. Um, look, the uh, there's a series of good questions there. One is um, make a list of the things the federal government's doing. Um, how useful are they? We have the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, which increases the cost of all infrastructure, uh, government-run built buildings, government highways, anything the federal government funds in construction, costs about 25 to 33 percent more than it needs to because the Davis-Bacon Act was passed in the 1930s. It was passed as an explicitly racist law to keep blacks out of work uh, in the north, and they, wa- and they set wage bars. South Africa used to do this, too, and we have this in U.S. law. It's the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, and so do you really want a law which says a third of the money the federal government spends on highways? We could have a third more highways, a third better highways, a third more safe um, bridges, but we have a law which says, no, we're going to spend money uh, poorly and waste it. And, and a law with, with the most vicious background uh, and history and reason for being put in. Um, I went and talked to somebody who was trying to say we should raise the, the congressman. Uh, we should raise the uh, gasoline tax. And I said, why, do you, why not get rid of the Davis-Bacon Act? You'd have more than enough money to build the roads you want to build and repave the roads you want to repave if you get rid of the Davis-Bacon Act. Why raise taxes to cover a government mistake? And he said, oh, then we, you want all our, building, all our highways to be built by Hispanics? Um, so the law remains a racist law. It's just a different racist law than it used to be. I think we should repeal racist laws that raise the cost of government. Uh, I think we should take a look at uh, how the federal government and state governments compensate people. Uh, Average wage in this country, if you look at wages, salary, pension, benefits, that's $60,000. Average state and local workers, $80,000. Average federal workers, $120,000. That's not base pay. That's pay 
plus pensions because state and local governments and the federal government have a pension system that's gold-plated. Uh, and as you know, there's about a $3 trillion unfunded liability from state pensions, money that they don't have, that they haven't set aside, that workers have not contributed that, uh, towards, and taxpayers are going to have to pay the, the $3 trillion. We need to reform that and move, as a number of states have, to fully funded systems that are defined contribution. So, and there's a new bill that I recommend everybody, Calvert, uh, congressman from California, to, through attrition, phase out 100,000 civilian jobs at the Pentagon. There are at least 200,000 jobs, civilian jobs at the Pentagon, that we could do without. And I, I say this quoting a guy who used to do budgets for the Pentagon, who's a big defense hawk, but he doesn't think it's a good idea to have 200,000 civilian workers that are not part of uh, making the country stronger, just more expensive. Uh, and as long as you're spending, and that's about maybe hundred and anyway, it's tens of billions of dollars to, to phase those out. So we start by doing the easy stuff where we know the government's wasting money. We know we have, and, and you don't have to fire anybody. You just do it through attrition at the Pentagon. When two guys leave, you only replace one. Um, and I think those are very, very helpful steps in the right direction the idea that the government is spending all of your tax money wisely, I think if, that's, if you think that's what they're doing, uh, join me in the transparency movement to get more government transparency so you can see what these pensions look like, what the pay looks like, what the benefits work like. And that doesn't even count days worked. Government employees work significantly fewer days than guys in the private sector, federal, state, and local, even though the pay is higher, the pensions higher, and the benefits are higher. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to just get to basic fairness and reduce the overspending that we make. Uh, and then we can have discussions about how important it is to have an XM bank and give a billion dollars uh, to, you know, Boeing or something. And some people think that's a good way to spend money. I'm not sure it is. Uh, I want to add my question in on top of that because on, underneath that layer of, like, of organized services that we provide here and infrastructure that we support um, the city with. Uh, we have the relationship with the Bureau of Land Management, who, oh, who this is their, this is federal land, and the event is held here in, uh, you know, in negotiation with them. Um, and yes, the fees are intense. Yes, their presence at the event is intense. Um, but as an organization, we still find it favorable to conduct this event here um, under their supervision than we, than we would be able to on private land. It's in order to have the sort of freedom to experiment that we have here, we found that the easiest way is to have the freedom managed in relationship with the federal government who protect the land that we have it on. Um, is there a problem with that arrangement? Should, should this event be held on private land? Should, uh, you know, is there, is there a bad reason why this is the case? Again, several levels of that question. Um, I don't think the Bureau of Land Management should use uh, Burning Man as an AMT, and they're do they've been doing that. They've been billing you for stuff that doesn't have anything to do with uh, Burning Man. Uh, they got caught doing it, backed off for a while, back at it again. Um, I think uh, transparency here would be an extremely helpful thing so you could see exactly what they're billing. Um, there have been some efforts to try and, using FOIA to get more information out of the federal government on, on what they spend things on. Uh, that's how we found out that the veterans that were, you know, lying about 
the care they were giving veterans, all the guys who they claimed should be fired had all been getting bonuses because they were super good uh, bureaucrats and they'd been getting bonuses for their wonderful work um, as we went on. But that's the kind of thing that transparency would help with. Uh, what should you do? You know, the, look, you don't take Burning Man's not a government. Burning Man has lessons for how government might behave. Uber's not the government, but Uber has lessons for how government might behave, like get out of the taxi regulating business. Um, you, there's no value. At, there's not value added there in the way they're doing it because they do it to keep out competitors and keep prices high. A government whose job is to keep competitors out and keep prices high and let consumers be damaged at the expense of the few is not being helpful. And the problem is that so many government programs have been captured, if not designed, for that purpose. And that's why we have to get some serious rethinking, which is why Silicon Valley and Burning Man and Uber and Airbnb shake things up and they break up all of these old, you know, you, know, uh, you go to Las Vegas where I think is probably the most corrupt taxi government situation and the Democratic Party and the unions down there and the taxi companies down there have a vice grip on the, uh, uh, on the city and that's why it's so expensive to get from the airport to the strip down in, uh, in Vegas and they've kept Uber completely out. Um, so, again, Burning Man has lessons for how people operate in their personal life and for government, but it, it, sometimes people think it's not a government. It doesn't claim the monopoly on force. Uh, it's not the replacement for government, but I do think we need to ask government, look, the gov our government operates like it was 1930 and we all worked on an assembly line. And we'd all promised to die at 67, and you know, you know, that Social Security would work, and all these things would work if we do that. If we'd remember to have eight kids and die at 67, the Ponzi schemes they set up would work, and they did work in 1935. Um, but at some point, not people didn't agree to die at 67 on average anymore, uh, and ruin the government's plans, uh, and they decided not to have eight kids all the time. So we need a much more flexible government, and we need a government. Geared that's more Uber uh, and less General Motors. How, how many more questions do you want to do? Just keep going. Yeah, I'm not. I'm cool. Cool. Next up. Uh, hi, Grover. Thanks a lot for for coming out. Uh, I I gotta say, um, props to your to your tone. I I did expect this was going to be really hostile, and uh, I really. Um, I mean, I'm also guilty of making like kind of inadvertently like catty political remarks. So like, uh, your like barbs are uh, are forgiven and and, uh, and all that um, so my my there are, I, I want to like draw some some parallels between like what are clearly some like, uh, expectedly like um, different views and I'm looking for places where where uh, where I'm looking for similarities and viewpoints here and there's some things that you said that really resonated with me like uh, you talked about liberty being a paramount value in a society right that like most people will want to be left alone that a top-down society is inimical to individual liberty right <clears throat> And I think we can all agree with that, whether that's, like, the government staying out of your face about, like, how wide your driveway has to be or the government staying out of your uterus, for instance. Um, so my personal concern is about wealth disparity. Uh, I just got a full ride to UC Santa Cruz, and I may not be able to take it because the cost of living is almost unaffordable to me. Uh, and right now, uh, what, I mean, rent in San Francisco is average $2,000 a month per room. I'm not sure what your cost of living is, but I think to most people in this room, that's pretty unaffordable. Um, 
it's becoming increasingly impossible to secure housing unless you're already owning class, like to buy a house. Uh, right now, we see like a lot of property management corporations that just already have massive piles of money, and they can just buy every cheap house in a neighborhood, and then they determine market rate for what everybody else is going to pay. Um, so you've talked about avoiding subsidizing the lifestyles of others, right? Like uh, in California, we had like a story where uh, you know the the kind of like uh, ideal like welfare queen had embezzled like sixteen thousand dollars in welfare money. Uh, but to me, it's also wasteful to see like a, a landlord spend six, like ten thousand dollars on a bottle of champagne, right? So recently, there were two like quotes that that resonated with me recently about solving kind of the the rent is too damn high issue. Uh, one was from Ann Coulter, who surprisingly to me said in a in an Ask Me Anything on on Reddit. Uh, that if every Christian and Jew paid their tithe as required by their religion, then we could solve poverty in America. Uh, and that, like, that sounded kind of like, uh, was like Ann Coulter talking about communism? Like, what's going on? Uh, and there was another article recently about, I don't remember what website it was on, but they were suggesting that, uh, like, a 20% property tax on, uh, on luxury apartments that weren't lived in by the owner, right? As a means of, like, you know, you talk about, like, uh, you know, not wanting to be a successful business owner and then having a slice of your income cut off to give to people who don't want to work. But I also feel bitter about uh, having to work two jobs so that whoever owns my house is getting paid just to be owning class and own my house. So whether or not you believe in like a property tax increase for property owners, uh, I wonder how like we fix this problem of subsidizing the lifestyle of others uh, when it comes to like realty corporations and uh, and property owners versus like the rest of us. Yeah, well, you you brought up the question of the cost of living in San Francisco and California. Um, both San Francisco and California have uh, massively uh, progressive tax structure and very high taxes. California, uh, I think you've lost about 2 million people in the last five years, uh, domestic, uh, d- domestic uh, migration leaving California, uh, the tens of billions of dollars of income. You can measure the I- – this is scary. The IRS knows – census knows how many people move from state to state. The IRS knows how much money they made, and they've got charts about how much income flows out of California, and California has been – Leaving people with uh, incomes have been leaving. Uh, well, people in general have been leaving, but also their incomes have left as well. And moving to Nevada, uh, Florida, uh, Texas, states without uh, income taxes. So people who say that you should raise income taxes to help wealth disparity, California's tried that, and it doesn't work. The place that's creating jobs, High-income jobs, low-income jobs, jobs for the middle class are states like Texas, which don't have an income tax. So I think we should be pragmatic and look at what works. Again, there are 50 states. Let's take a look at which states are growing, which states are creating jobs, uh, which states are having a growing standard of living uh, and having uh, more opportunities. One guy asked questions, suggested I was against uh, uh, public schools, uh, to clarify, Uh, I think money should follow students, not the bureaucracy. I think if you're going to spend $10,000 a student in a state or 12 or 5 or whatever the number is, um, that money should follow the student. And the student decides to go to the local public school, a different public school, a private school. That should be up to the parent and not to the government to say, you live in this neighborhood, that's the school you go to. And by the way, you don't have any say in the quality of the school because the teachers all have tenure and you can't do anything about it and we don't care what you think. Um, I think if every parent had, as in um, 
the state of Louisiana. Every child has a 380,000 of the low-income children in Louisiana um, have a $5,000 scholarship that follows them to any school they want to go to. So a single mother with four kids has $20,000 that she can move with her and her children to any school uh, structure that she wants to. A principal of the school is going to invite her in for tea because he's going to want the resources she brings. In the old system, the principal sent a letter to mom, said, your kids are mine, they're going to my school, send them or we'll send a truant offer after you. I don't care what you think. A lot more respect for the single mom with scholarships than the one who's told what to do. We've got to get away from this business of state governments, local governments, federal governments moving us around like we were all conscripted in the draft somehow and, and tell us to move here, here, and here. I would argue that the faster-growing economies, the lower-tax economies, have less income inequality, which has gotten worse under Obama's policies, not better. Uh, and we need to move towards growth. And the best way to have the less disparity between Bill Gates and the poorest person is for the poorest person not to have no job, but to have a job. That's the way we we want to income make income more equal or more evenly distributed by having more people working more successfully with higher paying jobs and again with an organic growth of the economy, not some sort of government, you know, pushing people one way or another. The draft is a lousy way to organize the labor force and the draft is a lousy way to tell people where to send their kids to school. You know, this is the best dressed set of questioners I've ever been privileged to attend. In D.C., in D.C., rarely, maybe even never, do we get purple mohawks and yes, this is. We should. This is it. What can this we do is, about that, Grover? I, well, you know, <laughs> on my list of things to do, get rid of the income tax and get, you know, a little better dress set up in D.C. We're going to get both those done. So um, one label I might use to describe myself is a, a bleeding heart libertarian. So many of these um, ideals that you uh, espouse about shrinking government, lowering taxes, um, are near and dear to my heart. But... I find that um, people that sit around your table and uh, some of the examples you gave today are quick to jump on, for instance, the both sides of the welfare state problem, which uh, I think um, can be considered a problem, and not so quick to jump on something you brought up much later in your talk about you know, shrinking the, the Pentagon. So how do we get you know, the other members of the NRA, not yourself, or other people that are around the table that are have different views than yourself that are also part of the right to think maybe you know if we if we took away all of welfare and all of these programs which are, are you know big government spending or if we took away all of the military which would have a bigger effect like how do we focus the problem yeah. on, on where the real money is being spent yeah you're you're quite right that this but this here's the good news on that um, again I mentioned that the Calvert legislation um, that begins to pare back uh, a lot of Pentagon spending. But we've actually packed, people talk, oh, Congress hasn't done anything. Okay. In 2011, Congress passed a law. Obama even 
introduced half of it. He thought he was tricking us, but he did introduce the sequester. The sequester was about $600 billion over the next decade in less defense spending than was planned and $600 billion in everything else. Okay, So even between defense and everything else. Defense is 20% of federal spending, 80% is everything else, but it was 50-50. So it was fairly heavily weighted towards uh, defense restraint. And the reason why Obama introduced that idea was he thought he was tricking the Republicans. and Because the Republicans said yes to that. And then he said, but if, if you don't want to do that, we could come up with a super committee, which would come up with an alternative, which was $1.4 trillion in higher taxes. Okay? I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. So the sequester, he thought the Republicans, when they read the small print that half of it was coming from the Defense Department, would go, oh, my goodness, we can't have this. Let's do the tax increase. And he waited for the Republicans to do that, and he waited, and he waited, and they never did. Um, and the good news is that the modern Republican in Congress, post-Tea Party, um, Tea Party gets quoted as saying a bunch of goofy things, but the impulse of the Tea Party that spending matters was important, and that message was heard in Washington. Uh, and again, both defense spending and non-defense spending, uh, $1.2 trillion total spending restraint over the next decade, um, real, powerful, and doesn't exclude defense. Now we need to argue with the guys who focus on national defense and say, how can we cut that so that we have a military strong enough to keep the Canadians on their side of the border? Um, and, and not... Don't forget you, the Mexicans. But <laughs> the, uh, keep an eye on the Canadians. They're shifty looking. Um, the, the good news is that there's, very, there's a right on crime effort, which we haven't talked about, but... One of the projects that I work on is trying to think through how many people do you really need in prison and for how long. If you keep a 75-year-old bank robber in jail, are you making us safer? Okay. Um, do you want to put people in prison for the length of time we're putting people in prison for, for possession of marijuana? Um, one of the projects that we've actually made some success at, and watch Texas. Okay, Texas has actually passed more res um, reforms on criminal justice in terms of uh, not putting people in prison, but putting them before drug courts, deciding to have people out of prison, but higher touch probation uh, and parole efforts. So you know where people are, but you don't have to, they can be home, they can be with families, they can be working, uh, but you still sort of know where they are because they've been bad and you don't want them to do it again. Um, there's a lot of very serious thinking, and perhaps it's a target-rich environment because for years nobody asked any silly questions about all these guys were locking up. Is this a useful way to spend our money? How much does it cost? People are beginning to ask that question. And the same thing on defense. We need conservatives are now, I won't tell you they were 10 years ago, but now asking the questions on defense and criminal justice, prisons and so on. What are outcomes? Let's not measure spending. Don't tell me how wonderful you are because you've spent so much on defense. What have you accomplished? And don't tell me you're wonderful because you locked a bunch of guys up or did you reduce crime? Okay. You can lock people up in a way that reduces crime. You can lock people up in a way that doesn't necessarily reduce crime. Texas has, has uh, been able to close two prisons by sending fewer people to jail and their declining crime rates are going down faster than other places. 
So they're not sacrificing on being tough on crime. Um, they're being serious about not wasting money. And we made a big step forward. I know it's a big issue for some of you. Um, the distinction between crack cocaine and powder cocaine used to be 100 to 1. We got it down to 18 to 1. 18, you went, where's 18 to 1 come from? Some senator said 18 sounded reasonable. And while we wanted 1 to 1, we said, we'll take 18. Because we've been working for 15 years to move down from 100. Uh, and that was a unanimous vote in the House because it had to be done by unanimous consent. So to back off of what was the, you know, I'm holding a press conference. I care deeply about drugs and crime. I will put people in prison forever um, with these mandatory minimums as if that was the measurement of how much you cared and if it was a measurement of being successful in reducing the amount of crime in the country. Uh, that happened, and you didn't read about it in the papers, And I mean, except in small print in the back pages. It wasn't on the front pages, and it wasn't on TV news. It wasn't a big deal because people were ready for it. And, and, and so we're making some progress, I think, on rethinking how much you want to spend. I mean, California spends $50,000 per person in prison, 50000 I mean, 25000 in Florida, and Florida thinks that's outrageous. California does fifty. Thank you. I have a quick break from policy questions. Can you tell us what your first three hours at Burning Man were like? Yeah. Um, got on a um, Spider 2 art car. This big black spider draped over us um, uh, with Larry Harvey and a couple other guys and my wife, uh, Sama, who's here with us this evening, unless she's escaped. I, hey, Sama. Um, and uh, we drove all out on the play and went to the, uh, uh, the shops, the bazaar around uh, uh, Burning Man, and we discussed how well Burning Man is going to burn. Um, and... Uh, uh, how, and and the, the jerk who burned it three days early a few years ago, um, we had a lecture on him, uh, and then we drove out to the temple, which was very uh, nice, and then actually went inside the uh, the embrace. Uh, and they kept saying, we're about to burn it, and I said, you are going to like whistle or something before you... <laughs> no, tomorrow morning. I said, okay. So we sort of went through that quickly, um, and uh, then came back, and then I walked, the, my wife and I walked the whole thing as well, which is takes longer than with the car. Uh, and then sat up until 2.30, stood up until 2.30 at an absinthe bar. Um, that, uh, which is really cool stuff, and it's not bad for you. I Googled it. Wik <laughs> Wikipedia says all this stuff about it making you crazy. It's not true. Uh, whole, you know, a lot of states banned it, uh, and Europe it was illegal because they believed it rotted your brain, and it's mean, not any worse for you than regular alcohol. Um, and uh, now they've re-legalized it in many places, and they recommend it as part of a healthy diet. That oh, and then I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I went out to watch the sun um, come up. And watch everybody jump out of airplanes. Yeah. That was cool. uh, and then at seven o'clock, 
they said they were going to burn the embrace, but they didn't. And at 7.30, they said then they didn't. Anyway, they got finally got around to sort of burning it. And uh, I sat, stood next to the guy who helped design and burn last year's temple. And I got all the pictures of here's what the temple looked like and here's what it looked like when we burned it. And I got a running di- a commentary on what they did wrong in not preparing the embrace to burn completely as quickly as it, it should have. So it's a very educational morning. If I decide to become an arsonist, I am much, <laughs> much improved in my tech. The thing will go down nicely. Excellent work. You did it. You're doing it right. All right, let's have another question. Anyways, I, I praise you on being here. Uh, my name is Chad, and... Um, so basically, I, I've well, first of all, in Vegas, just to keep, just to, not to correct you, but it's actually free to take uh, from the airport to the strip. But, anyways, uh, free to take. You said it, it costs an arm and a leg to take the uh, from the Taxi? airport. Anyways, moral of the story: I've listened to uh, countless interviews with you, and I, I praise you on being here. God bless you, um, and what? and listening to your discussions about Obama and whatnot. And I, I definitely, I just want to say that, you know, this, this man who, uh, whose face is on sheets of LSD and who in his book said the influence of the 60s was soaked into my skin via the art and music of the time, uh, I know that maybe not the influence of the 60s was soaked into your skin, or I don't know if you know who MAPS is, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I, the question I want to ask you is, is somebody ready to come into office from the Republican side who's going to match the intelligence of the first psychedelic president ever? Um, first of all, Janis Joplin was the high point of Western civilization. Um, second thought. Uh, I'll give you a quick rundown on, on what's going to happen on the Republican side, because uh, I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, I can't vouch for their experience with psychedelics, uh, but I think they'd be fine. You have six Republicans who are either on stage or right next to the stage looking to jump on and could run for president. Every one of them has the name ID, the ability to raise resources, and the political support to run start to finish. Unlike sometimes, like four years ago and eight years ago, Republicans would go, I'm going to run in Iowa, and if I win in Iowa, then people will know who I am, and then I can have a campaign. Okay? So all these guys were playing for 15 minutes of fame, hoping to catch fire, and none of them did. I'd like to ask you a tax question. Sure. Uh, if I, as a private citizen, uh, renounce my citizenship... Uh, because I don't want to pay taxes. And then I get arrested in Thailand, and I go to the U.S. Embassy, and I say, help me out. They're going to tell me to pound sand, say, I'm not your problem. If I'm the CEO of a company, and I set up an elaborate sequence of offshore subsidiaries in the Cayman Islands, Netherlands, Ireland, and so on, and they own some assets, and my assets through those subsidiaries get nationalized by Venezuela and I go to the federal government, I can get the State Department to rattle some taxpayer-funded savers on my behalf. So can I get your verbal commitment to support uh, this policy change? Prohibit the state and defense departments from spending federal taxpayer money on behalf of the interests of foreign corporations. Uh, Legally, the question is an interesting question whether you could, how you do that. Are you talking about inversions? Is that the, the, what you focused on? The Virgin Islands specifically? No, inversions. Oh, oh inversions. Oh. Where, the, 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 what people are generally bringing up, if this is what you're getting to, mm-hmm. is Burger King is going to be purchased 
by a Canadian firm. Canada's federal corporate income tax is 17%. Ours is 35 uh, Canada has a, a territorial tax system. What you earn in Canada, Canada taxes. What you earn in other states, uh, governments, uh, countries, those other governments tax. The United States has won a 35% rate higher than, I think, every other country in the world, now that it's higher than Japan's. Uh, but we also have a worldwide tax system. So if you earn a dollar in France, you pay French taxes and then American taxes on top of that. If you earn a dollar in France and bring the money back, we tax you. Uh, there's $2 trillion earned by American companies overseas. Sitting overseas, if it was brought here, it could be taxed as high as 35% to bring it back. Um, what we should do is say, go to what the rest of the world does, a territorial tax system that says, we tax stuff that happens in America. If you earn money overseas and you bring it back, good, bring it back. We don't want these icky foreigners touching our money. Bring it back here. Um, instead, our policy is that when you bring the money back, we punish you if you bring it back and we... and if you don't bring it back, you can build a factory in France or in Japan or anywhere else. Um, we have a very destructive tax system, and uh, Burger King, by inverting, by being bought, which, by the way, you can't necessarily fix. I mean, these companies are on the market. Some British company could buy an American company, and it's not like the CEO decided to move. He got bought. Um, Should we disincentivize that, though? Yes, we should disincentivize it by having a territorial tax system, and then you'd never hear about it again. Our tax system creates this problem. Um, and Obama has recognized this for the last six years and keeps promising to do something about it, and we really need to move now. The reason why you're seeing inversions now is the businesses have gone, we give up, they're never going to fix this, we're, we're going to invert. Because it's, it's expensive to be an American company if you're interested if you do international work, more expensive than being a German company because of our tax policy. It's, this is not a factory leaving the United States. Nothing moves. Just the name of the ownership and you get better tax policy worldwide. Not in America. It doesn't change your, any tax paid by any business doing any business in America. That doesn't change. It's how you get taxed in Thailand and Ireland and France and every other country. That's the change and it makes it more expensive to be an American firm than a Canadian firm. And even worse, it's worse to be an American firm than a French firm, which is stupid. Um, I have a question about some of your past work and how it relates to your present philosophy. And so if this is something that is no longer relevant or something that you've kind of tossed aside, then I apologize. But um, you mentioned earlier that the central core idea behind the center-right movement is this idea of liberty and having the government leave us alone, essentially. But as someone who worked to end the movement to defund apartheid, how does that coincide with that overarching philosophy of freedom um, by essentially supporting one of the least free governments of the 20th century? Um, I've read that article in The Nation. It's not true. Sometimes people fib. Um, I actually worked with the South African Black Taxi Association um, fighting the South African government's effort to force everybody to ride their buses and their trains. Um, so, of course, as an American, you wanted a non-racial South Africa and every other country. Um, but I didn't. Apart from working with the with the uh, the Zulus fighting the same thing, um, 
uh, with Budalese and so on, and with the, the South African Bus and Taxi Association, which renamed itself after it was the Black Tax Association. That's the only political work I did there, but I was certainly supportive of all of the efforts to move towards a non-racial, fully independent society. And Sometimes people lie because they don't know any better or because they're trying to make a point, and that was unfortunate. I think this is from an article in The Nation, which is sort of a left-wing publication, but usually is better than that. Okay. Thank you. Next up. Hi, thanks so much. Um, so some of the policies that you've discussed tonight as some of your kind of core advocacy areas seem like the effects of those changes you're advocating for would disproportionately affect people of color specifically. So I'm curious how you and your organizations have worked to bring in voices from the communities that might be impacted, specifically people of color and other minority groups. Sure. Actually, the issues we've talked about, it's the government impacting uh, communities of color by being mean to them. And I think they should stop, starting with the Davis-Bacon Act, starting with the effort to not let parents have full school choice. Look, um, wealthy people have school choice. They can send the kids to private schools. It's not even a question of color. Uh, as soon as he got to D.C., President Obama sent his two kids to the rich kids' school um, and killed a 3,000 scholarship proposal, not a proposal, a law that the Republicans had passed giving 3,000 poor kids, low-income kids in D.C., primarily minority, um, scholarships to go to whatever school they wanted to. He killed that at the request of the teachers' union. So, it is accurate and important to point out that the policies that I've outlined today would end the government's policies, which do disproportionately damage minorities, particularly their opposition to school choice, their continued defense of tenure so that you can't move out incompetent teachers and not give parents the ability to move from school to school or teacher to teacher to get the best education. Um, and the people, the 10 million people who aren't working today because our policies have been bad for the economic growth compared to Reagan's um, in terms of uh, job creation, those are particularly minority people who are without jobs today. So, yes, I'm focused on the government's disproportionate. I think the government shouldn't kill anybody's job. I don't think they should stop anybody from having school choice, and I don't think they should keep anybody out of the business of working uh, in repairing infrastructure. It is true that when the government does those things in a ham-handed way, as it's done for the last 60 years, it has been worse for African Americans and worse for Hispanics than other people. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm sorry, I should have uh, rephrased that. I meant more the organizations you work with, not the policies you advocate for. So groups like the NRA or your taxation groups, how do they physically bring people of color to the table or minority groups? Because some of the communities I'm involved with really struggle with this, um, really struggle with bringing women or minority groups to the table. So I'm curious to learn from your experience. Well, you want to, you want to do outreach on, on school choice. I think the leadership on the fight against uh, to, to restore those vouchers for minority kids, that was led by African-American uh, families in D.C. with all of the school choice groups that we work with in our center-right meeting reaching into that community to uh, help highlight voices on that. On the uh, board of directors of the National Rifle Association, we have 76 members of the board. It's a small legislature. Um, and we work... Uh, very hard to make sure that we have strong African-American participation on the board uh, and on staff, uh, as well as Hispanic. We, we ran 
uh, one of our board meetings in San Antonio specifically to have all the attention that a, that a uh, national convention gets in heavily Hispanic areas and highlighting the importance. The NRA has always made the case, uh, historically important case, that many of our gun laws flowed from southern states trying to disarm African Americans. The laws, the anti-concealed carry laws, um, the gun registration laws and so on. And so one of the most important things to do is to get rid of those vestiges of official racism that you see in gun control um, and we've gone state by state to do that. So I think it's very important to reach out to all communities. I think every ethnic group, every faith community would be better off in a free society. And you want not only to make that case, but you want to work with people so that people from each of those communities can liberate themselves and, and take a leading role in these fights, not just benefit. I'm going to do all this stuff and I'll take care of you. No, no, no. Let's you and I do stuff together to make your life and everybody's life better. Whatever. How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Miscellaneous heathen. Yes. Um, so I'm going to kind of give you a lob question here. Uh, as somebody who used to identify as a progressive and has moved along the liberty train uh, towards liberty, I think that when I hear you talk about uh, how the left acts and what I hear from this audience when they feel a little bit... Um, I guess, uh, divisive with you about it, is what they want to see is that they, they have a utopian view that the world could be better, and yet they believe that big government is what will do it for them. And what I'm not hearing enough of to help them understand the wrongs of government is why is government itself not helping out? Why would localization be better? And I think when I look around the room and it's like a a room full of people that came to psychedelic talks, and my friend Rick Doblin is sitting in the back here, and he can't uh, administer psychedelics legally to people to treat their PTSD, except for in small studies that are stifled by FDA. He can't bring uh, marijuana research to people because the uh, NIH and the DEA get in his way. Can we talk a little bit more? Because what I see is, yes, I would love to have free health care. It would be great to have um, this minimum wage or free income for everybody. But if I take that, I have to accept that I'm also going to take the government summing in and saying, no, you can't marry this person and you're going to go to jail for this, or you can't ingest that. So maybe you could speak to that for us. Sure. I, I think it's very important that we recognize that in the United States, there's a tremendous consensus on where we want to go. Some people think that the government is a tool to help get you there. And I think if we look at U.S. history, world history, uh, the government is a, is a blunt tool. Um, it's, it, it's like a baseball bat. You can't ask somebody to do an appendectomy with a baseball bat. You can't, well, you can, but it, it doesn't work very well, not for the patient. Um, but no matter, how hard, no matter how hardworking you are, no matter how well-intentioned you are, you and the baseball bat are not going to be able to do the appendectomy. And government is a terribly blunt tool. And when you empower government to do one thing, this really good thing, um, it takes that power and doesn't necessarily check with you about exactly what it's going to be using all that uh, lovely power for. So, um, But the good news is that we can get a lot of left-right agreements uh, on some issues. And I mentioned the right on crime issues. I work with the NAACP uh, and the ACLU on trying to figure out how to reduce the impact uh, the government has on uh, 
the families of offenders and the, the offenders themselves. How long is it you have to have somebody in prison to, because they they did something very bad, you know? But how long's too long, and how do you do it in a way that damages their kids less, and their neighborhood less, and their family less? Um, and these are ones where, where we need to make the case always that we're trying to do that we're trying to move forward to make people's lives better off to give them more freedom to, to, to give them earned respect earned accomplishment earned wages and to let them have more control of their lives because they can do a better job with it than somebody who doesn't even know their name and has them on a list in Washington somewhere uh, we're just better off your question about localism I like local government better than state government because there are more of them because it's easier to move away from them because there's more competition possible between counties and towns than between states and there's more competition between states than the federal government. If the federal government does something stupid, it's got to be really stupid to make you want to move to France. Okay, I mean It's just a lot of work. Uh, but people will move more easily between states and even more easily between cities and, and towns. So localism allows you to experiment and you know, let's see if this works. Um, I'd really hope no state would pass a law that somebody hadn't tried at city level first. And I really don't want the federal government passing laws that haven't been done in some state first, at least something along those lines, uh, to which you can point to and, and learn because we'd avoid a lot of problems if we experimented on Vermont or New Hampshire um, to see how they work before we saddle everybody uh, with that idea. But the, the center-right effort to maximize liberty is the effort to give people more choices, more control, more bottom-up decision-making. Here's the $5,000 or $10,000 voucher scholarship for your kid you decide how he gets educated. Then all of a sudden you change the incentives for the school bureaucracy. A new poll just came out that, that half of only half of the people who work in public schools are teachers. Okay? There's an awful lot of, of jobs that aren't being teachers. Now, not everybody's a teacher, but 50% lower than I think what people expect. Um, there's been an effort to try and get a two-thirds requirement in some states that two-thirds of the money in the education department has to go to teaching in the classroom. Not every state can do that. So um, I have a question. We've talked a lot about what freedoms and liberties we should protect, which you know I, I appreciate. I'm curious what you personally believe the federal government's role should be in society, in the market, in order to increase utility. In what ways should they be involved? Sure. Look, the federal, the, the Constitution is is a pretty good list of things the government ought to do, and an incomplete list of things that it shouldn't do. But it's a good list of things that it should should and shouldn't do. Um, we have to have a national defense. It's a dangerous world out there. Uh, we make it more dangerous when we go out and pick fights sometimes. But um, we, but it is dangerous, and we need to be serious um, about being prepared. Not wasting a dollar. Wasting a dollar on defense is not any more moral than wasting a dollar on something else. It's an unnecessary expense. Um, and so you have to have strong national defense. I think you need a judiciary. I think 
I'm very comfortable executing murderers, but I'm not very comfortable putting people in prison for petty crimes for years and years and years. Uh, I think we should be very tough on real crimes and not so tough on maybe not crimes and in between decide how much of a penalty will dissuade people from committing crimes again, not how cool can we sound. I, I testified against mandatory minimums during the discussion of uh, crack cocaine at the House uh, Judiciary. And I had in front of me the list of all the things that get, have mandatory minimums. And they were all press conferences. They were The mandatory minimum for treason in America is five years. The mandatory minimum for dirty pictures is like 35, okay? So things that would get people out. I am outraged about this happening and we should have a 35-year, you know. Um, and some, some guy got a press conference out of it, but now people were spending, you know, 40 years in prison for selling drugs once as a kid. Um, I'm not sure that the press conference was worth it. Uh, and there's just an awful lot I think we can do to reform some of those things while being tough on crime. So, again, states should do most of the crime stuff. There are some federal crimes. There are 4,000 laws the federal government has that can put you in prison. 4,000 federal crimes. That's not murder. That's not bank robbery. Those are all state laws. All the real crimes in America are state laws. The federal laws are things the states have already made illegal, but somebody wanted to have a press conference about, like carjacking. Remember there was a spate of carjackings about 10 years ago? <clears throat> Every state has a law against carjacking. Taking a gun or a knife and stealing someone's car is illegal, even in Massachusetts. Okay, We don't need a federal law, but somebody decided he needed a press conference. So we got a federal law uh, making that illegal too. There's a whole bunch of paperwork that if you fill out the paperwork wrong, even without any proof or argument that you meant to do anything wrong, that can be a go-to-jail. 4,000 laws like that. I don't think we need 4,000. I, mean, I don't know how many we need, but 4,000 is not the right answer. Um, so I would call that stuff back, and I don't think there's a magic number of things the federal government does, but let's look at the things the states are already doing and get the feds out of that. Let's look at the things that are counterproductive and stop doing those. Let's, if there's less expensive ways to do the same thing, let's do that. And then as you get closer, then you can look at other ideas and decide, you know, does the government have to do X, Y, or Z? And I, I think if it's not in the Constitution, the presumption is that maybe the federal government ought not to do it. Hi. Um, so I have a question about, you mentioned earlier that um, states that have open carry laws have lower crime rates. And I'm wondering Concealed carry laws. Concealed carry laws. You mentioned that they have lower crime rates. However, the New York Times and the Washington Post just recently published a study that said that there was no correlation between a concealed carry laws um, and crime rates. I'm wondering where you actually got your study from. Sure. And I also have another question. Um, you also mentioned that Reagan's administration, you mentioned it in a very positive light. However, Reagan actually um, had higher tax rates than Obama does. And so I'm wondering what would be your ideal version of a government that exists today? Sure. Um, when Reagan left office, not when he started, when he started office is true. When he left office, the, uh, there were two tax rates, 15% and 28% for individuals. Uh, today, the top tax rate's 43%. Um, so, and all tax rates have moved up, ex with the exception of the Bush's 
bringing it down, and Obama agreed to keep some of that. But um, so rates actually are significantly higher um, tax rates under Obama. It's one of the reasons we have slower growth. Uh, the first part of the question was the the source for your study. Oh, oh, um, yeah, the, the, there are two studies. One is uh, "More Guns, Less Crime" by John Lotts, a book. It's the only study of every county uh, in the country. Um, there, con- and and what you have to measure is uh, crimes decreasing versus increasing. Um, and if you look at that, the other piece to that, which I, I don't know what study they're talking about. I haven't seen uh, the Washington Post study. Um, but the, the, the important thing is once a, a state passed concealed carry, uh, shall issue concealed carry, you saw as years went out, as more people got concealed carry, crime dropped faster than other states. All states' crime has been dropping a little bit over the last 10, 15 years. And the more people with concealed carry the faster it's dropped. So you, you may be able to say that in different ways to, to make the Washington Post case, but the question is, do more people with concealed carry lead to a faster dropping of the crime rate than in those states that don't? And the answer to that is yes, and you have to look at county-by-county county, uh, legislation, county-by-county uh, county crime statistic. Hi. Hey, thanks a lot for entertaining this for so long. Um, it's been fun. Uh, my quickish, quish, quick question, I'll try to phrase well, is that um, uh, I really appreciate the notion of um, competition in generating good results and seeing what works. Um, I want to know, uh, assuming that there is some power to be had that can be beneficial for society, in organizing at larger and larger scales. Um, how do we bring competition to the macro level, level governance? How do we get away from this narrative that I hear in this room a lot right now that positions me in opposition to my government rather than as part of my government? Well, we want you don't want the government to be opposed to the growth and strength of the American people. Um, the government does a number of things that damage the economy and people's opportunities to get ahead or to have control over their own lives, their, own, uh, their kids' education. Um, we want the government to follow the will of the people, not to be pushing at them. Um, I think the, you have competition between states. There are ways to make that stronger, make it easier for people to move from state to state. Uh, and at the federal level, um, there's a, a number of ways, as we did under Bill Clinton, President Clinton, signed welfare reform. He said, we're spending this much on welfare reform. We're going to keep spending that much plus inflation and population growth, but I'm putting a block grant out to every state. Did we give you a billion last year? You got a billion this year, and it'll grow with inflation. But by the way, we're removing all the federal strings or most of the federal strings, and you decide how to spend it so you can have control. So you can take a federal program that's still national but have it administered by the states and give them more flexibility. That allows you to have 50 different efforts to say what works to reduce welfare dependency, to help people who are poor that need it. And almost all the states have used that to focus on people who most need the help 
and the people who can get off of welfare, help them to get off and to refocus and to spend the money more wisely. So I think block granting, food stamps, Medicaid, other housing programs, jobs programs, and letting the 50 states compete to do it better, states would learn from each other what works. As soon as, when Washington has a one-size-fits-all, this is the rule and everybody does it this way. Well, what if it's a stupid rule? How would you ever know, because everybody's doing it that way, how do you know what works and what doesn't work? Somebody has a theory, but how do you compare the different states? So I think the more you can take national, doesn't mean it's a state issue, it's a national issue, but it can be managed at the state level through a federal program, that gives you the competition that you otherwise don't get in a federal program. Hi, uh, I'm Rick Doblin uh, with MAPS, a nonprofit trying to make marijuana and psychedelics into prescription medicines, and we met with Stuart Miller, and you wrote a letter to the DEA trying to encourage them to end the government monopoly on the supply of marijuana, for, for which I thank you very much. Unfortunately, there still is a government monopoly on the supply of marijuana. I, sometimes when I write them letters, they don't do what I want. <laughs> that, that's right. But what I'm wondering is if we could – there's two things that are obstructing medical marijuana research. The federal government has an extra review by the Public Health Service and NIDA that was set up precisely because they have the monopoly – and there's also the monopoly. And I, we've got recently a letter from 30 members of Congress to the Secretary of HHS saying end this public health service review. But it was only four Republicans and 26 Democrats. And I think Obama is looking for political cover from Republicans. So I'm wondering if there's some way that we could work together to see if we could get Republicans to join in in this effort to give Obama the encouragement to end the monopoly and end the public health service review and just let medical marijuana be evaluated by FDA through scientific privately funded studies. And the reason we're making so much progress with MDMA and now we're working with the Department of Defense and the VA for post-traumatic stress is we have our own independent source of MDMA, of LSD, of psilocybin. So it's we're actually blocked because of the monopoly through marijuana. And even though we have 23 medical marijuana states and two legal states, legalization states, for some reason now we still can't do it. So I think Republicans hold the key. And if we could Does that need a law change or could the president do this by executive order? Both could be executive order. We don't need law. So I think that he's um, looking – I can't imagine. I think he's looking for political cover because he's not very courageous in this area. But I think it could be rep- – provided by Republicans, if they're really willing to say, let's end the drug war, let's let science regulate how marijuana is evaluated. We need to get um, more congressmen to focus. This this also, though, I mean, the president has been fairly aggressive in a number of other areas mm-hmm. in using executive orders. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I don't think we should let him off the hook on this one by saying, oh, the Republicans might be mad at him. The Republicans are mad at him for all the other times he changed the rules. Um, And on this one, I think it's legally clearer that he can do this. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Um, Yes, I I don't think he has something to fear on that, um, but let's follow up. Yeah, because I think if if Senator McCain, for example, if, if you had contacts with him, if he would say this is in part we have a marijuana study for veterans with PTSD, but if he were to say, let's reform the whole process, I think that would make a big difference. Because he 
focused on this at all? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Although our marijuana study is in Arizona. Okay. So um, do you want to talk afterwards? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's Burning Man stuff right there. Any more questions? You know, with, um, you know, white privilege in a sense. Uh, it lasts. You know, I, I read a history of Oakland. Oakland used to have a car plant. Moved down about 30 miles down to Fremont. Uh, it cut out a lot of black people out of the job. They weren't direct lines. That plant went through a really transformative. Uh, uh, collaboration between Toyota and GM, and now it's a Tesla plant. Um, and you know, we have after World War II, we had the GI Bill. You know, millions of white GIs got benefits, went to college. Basically, a huge boom. Black Americans got cut out of that. Cut, you know, it was ridiculous. Uh, and even now, with the you know the housing crisis blowing up, disproportionately black and Hispanic people was you know got the lousiest loans. And when I see that. You know, it's it's kind of crazy because people. I come from Pakistan, shitty third world country, but you know, I get a better shot at improving my life here than people who are Americans, born and raised, but have a long, crappy history. And these people are growing as a percentage of our population. We cut them out of our access to a technology. You know, you might have. I, I don't know how Reagan's boom lasted, uh, but you know, the jobs then that were accessible, uh, maybe good-paying jobs that didn't require technology, maybe auto workers, maybe steel, which were declining, but maybe that was part of the boom. Those jobs are going away. So, you know, uh, people who grew up in my neighborhood, crappy schools, they don't know what good credit is, they don't have access to good transport. You know, they're, they're lost. I mean, how are we transitioning to, you know, I mean, letting them out of the jail is good, but how do we help these people along? Who will be our funding our retirement down the line? Sorry, I'm rambling, but I want you to address that part. Well, I think the, the, the point I was making is, one, you want an overall strong economy that's so good that, that people are hiring. I mean, we had, we had labor shortages um, when the economy was strong. I mean, the people were having trouble finding people. We, we need an economy so strong <clears throat> that companies will hire and train. We don't have that right now. Um, but uh, we, al- we also need an immigration policy that brings allows more people to come in, more high-tech guys, more STEM guys, because that actually creates jobs, not just the job of the guy who came, but all the jobs that, uh, that are created that way. Um, so there are a number of things that would be very helpful to economic growth, which would, I mean, the first beneficiaries of a strong economy is the guy who gets a job, not the guy who gets a dividend later in the year. The guy who didn't have any job okay, and now has one, who didn't have a career, now has the opportunity. That's the importance of, of the general overall job creation, and I think that that needs to be the focus, again, from a bottom-up organic growth of the economy, not some, I'm going to give you money to do this because I'm smarter than everybody else, and, the, and I think this is what you should be done with people's money. How about an economy that grows so that people, 300 million Americans, making decisions about what they want to buy and what they want to do, they decide what ought to be done, not some guy in Washington with a brain fart going, I think you should do this. Well, I don't care what you think. Okay? Get out of the way and let's create jobs for everybody. Again, the most important job this crazy guy doesn't have one right now. Thank you, guys. Good night. Thank you, Gerber. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, 
where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Okay, let me begin by saying that, in my opinion, anybody who, like me, is a fan of Janis Joplin, well, he has to have many redeeming social qualities. And before I listen to this talk with you, I have to admit to having an overall negative opinion about Grover Norquist, a man who I only knew about from reading mainly liberal media. Now, I have a completely different attitude. And while I most likely don't agree with him on more than a handful of issues, overall I really like what he has to say. I like the tone he uses. And to me, he seems to be a very reasonable person, even though we have widely varying opinions about some things. And should we ever meet one day in a state where cannabis is legal, I'd be more than happy to share a joint with him. So now I have two people on my list of celebrities that I'd like to share a joint with. The other one, of course, is someone that every stoner in the world wants to toke with, and that's Snoop Dogg, of course. And for a maximum fantasy toke experience, can you imagine sharing a joint with Grover Norquist and Snoop Dogg at the same time? And just to be clear, I don't mean to imply that Grover smokes pot. I'm assuming that Snoop Dogg and I would be taking him on his first ride on the grass, so to speak. <laughs> now, uh, getting back to reality and leaving my fantasy world for a while, I certainly hope that you found a few things about which to agree with Grover Norquist on. Things like wanting to be left alone by the government and working to increase liberty for people everywhere. While we may have competing opinions about how to achieve these lofty goals, let's at least agree that looking at the big picture we have much in common. And one of the things that I have in common with most conservatives is a mutual dislike and distaste for Obama. I won't go into all my reasons, but he is by far, by far the most horrible excuse for a president that has come along in my lifetime. And uh, I also want to disagree with the questioner who seemed to imply that Obama is the first psychedelic president. Not so. His consciousness is as far removed from psychedelic consciousness as I can imagine. And I'm about as far to the left as you can get. So it isn't just conservatives who have seen through his lying ways. The emperor has no clothes, and he has no honor as well. Well, I'm glad to get that off my chest. <laughs> that said, there still isn't a single national-level Republican running for president that I'd vote for. I'm, uh, I'm with Russell Brand about voting, by the way. Like you, I suspect I don't agree with every conclusion that Grover came to in this talk. However, one of his points about how the government seems to come up with one crisis after another and then quickly has a way to solve it, uh, using more government interference, of course. In fact, this insanity about Ebola on the African continent is a perfect example. The only crisis, so-called, about Ebola in the U.S. is the media circus that the pharmaceutical companies are stringing up so as to get the government to force people to try an untested vaccine to stop a disease that is of no threat whatsoever in the U.S. And if you don't agree with me about that, well, then let's revisit this podcast in about two years, and then we'll see if Ebola is still even in the news or whether some new threat will be requiring the government to step in and take care of us all, like the unruly children those morons in Washington, D.C. think we are. Now, while I would like to continue talking about some of these issues that uh, were raised in this talk, uh, well, I'm already uh, upset enough and we've already gone on long enough, so I'll restrict myself to one final observation. And that is that 
I noticed a difference in my reactions to what was being said when the focus was on an issue or a policy versus how they were more emotionally charged when an issue or policy was tied to a politician's name. For example, I think that most of us can agree that we want the government to leave us alone. But when, as an example of that, George Bush's name came up, my thinking drastically changed in that my ability to objectively evaluate what was being said was now clouded by my distaste for the Bush crime family. Do you see what happened? I forgot about working for liberty and instead began to revisit all of the reasons that I have no respect for Bush or Clinton or Obama or any of those guys for that matter. The question we should be asking ourselves is, is it the system that we're upset with or is it the people who have floated to the top of that system that we're upset with? For me at least, I have to work hard to separate my feelings about policy issues and the people who are on the opposite sides of those issues from me. I'd rather take sides with an issue, though, than with the people who agree with me about it, because ultimately, I don't think it's possible to find a politician with whom I can agree even half the time. And I don't want to be backed into a corner of supporting someone simply because they, once upon a time, agreed with one of my hot-button issues. It's the system that must be changed, my friends. The people running the system aren't to blame. It's our entire system of government that needs an overhaul. At least that's my opinion. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.